Would you open up with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14? Today our sermon is going to be focusing on Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. If you've been with us for uh, some of our Wednesday night studies, um, you'll know some of this already. We've, we've spent some time uh, going through and studying uh, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so for those of you that have been with us, you'll know the, the basic structure of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is the last book of the law. And this book is designed to prepare the people for entrance into the land. Moses is speaking to this new generation. The old generation has passed away. And in preparation to enter the land, he's reviewing the covenant with them. And so Moses divides Deuteronomy into three speeches. The first speech is about covenant history. The second speech is about covenant stipulations, what we ought to do in light of the covenant. And the third speech is about blessings and curses. What will happen if we obey or disobey the stipulations? And so uh, this chapter, this section of Deuteronomy 14, is part of the second speech, the second sermon of Moses about covenant stipulations. And specifically, it's an exposition on um, the fourth commandment. And so in the larger section, we'll have uh, explanations of festivals and feasts, and today, the tithe. So as we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, your perfect word, your true word, your enduring word. Father, as we study your law for the people of Israel, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you prepare our hearts for the return of your son, when he will come to reign in glory? Would you show us your way and show us how to respond in the waiting? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money into your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is, with, who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So today, we're entering into a new church year and into a new season of Advent. And so we've already talked about this some, but Advent is kind of a two-fold um, season. On the one hand, Advent prepares us 
and focuses, on, focuses us on the birth of Jesus. And so as we prepare for Christmas, we're thinking about Advent, we're thinking about Jesus' first coming. But as we reflect on Jesus' first coming, we're also reflecting on and looking forward to Jesus' second coming. When he will come again to judge the living and the dead. When he will come again in glory to make all things right and to make all things new. But Jesus' second coming presents a problem for a lot of Christians. Because Jesus could surprise us. He could come back tomorrow and he could uh, take us all to heaven. He could uh, resurrect all the dead and make us new. But more than likely, what's going to happen is you're going to go home. You're going to go to Advent night tonight. Then you're going to go to bed. You're going to go home. You're going to wake up tomorrow to a very normal Monday. You're going to deal with the same struggles and sins that have burdened you. You're going to deal with the same difficult people that you work with, that you live with. Your children are going to disobey you. You're going to have to discipline your children. And all of these struggles, all of these problems are still going to present themselves to you on Monday. And so for a lot of people, we think of the second coming of Jesus as this great sentimental thing. I know that it'll be good one day, but it doesn't really make much of a difference in our lives. And so it's natural to ask the question, so what? Jesus is coming, but what am I supposed to do in the meantime? Well, the Israelites were in a similar situation. They would have been asking similar questions as they entered into this new promised land. They're coming into the promised land, but it's not quite ready. It's not quite reached its final glory, its final consummation. You see throughout the book of Judges that they're still fighting against these other nations. They're still fighting against the Philistines, particularly. Even as David and Saul rule, the Philistines are still harassing the people. They're still in trouble. The temple still needs to be built. The palaces still need to be built. The cities still need to be built and rebuilt after the destruction of the conquering of Israel. And so it's natural for them to ask the question, now what? I've entered into the land. I've entered into this promised rest of God, but it doesn't feel very restful. And it doesn't feel very safe. And so they lived in the same kind of kingdom that we live in. An already not yet kingdom. A kingdom that has already come, that has already come in its fullness, that we get to experience today, but also a king that is lacking something, a kingdom that is lacking something, that's not fully made present to us yet. We live in this same kind of kingdom. And so God's answer to them, the, in their already not yet kingdom, speaks to us today. And he says, in the waiting, build my kingdom. Build my kingdom. In this passage, you'll notice a repeated phrase. The place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. Now, what's happening here, when, when God makes his name dwell upon a place, is he's setting it apart for covenant purposes. He's identifying with it. He's saying, this is mine. He's laying a covenant claim to it and calling us to join him in that claim. So in other words, if God calls us to build his kingdom, then we should be a king, building a kingdom modeled after him and his kingship and his rule. And if the church is God's kingdom, which it is, then we should be working not just as individuals, but as a covenant community to build a kingdom that looks like the king, to build a kingdom that looks like 
Jesus that models God's rule. And so here's what that looks like this morning. Three things. First, we build a kingdom where fear is natural, where joy is central, and where love is actual. Build a kingdom where fear is natural, joy is central, and love is actual. First, build a kingdom where fear is natural. Look at verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And so here we discover the primary purpose of the tithe that God has set apart. The primary purpose of this tithe is to teach the Israelites fear, to teach the Israelites to fear God. Now, this isn't simply what we think of when we think of fear. It's not simply a trembling fear, but that's one element of it. When we come before God, he is holy and we are not, and there's a disconnect and we are Without the grace of Jesus, we are in total need of his mercy. So God's holiness, God's majesty should strike trembling fear in us. But fear of God also is talking about trust and reliance and hope and love. And you'll notice here that the Israelites are not coming to God trembling. The Israelites are coming to God in joy, feasting. So this is a, a terrified fear this is a hopeful, joyful fear of God. And ultimately, it's a fear that fosters trust. Because feasting requires at least two kinds of trust. On the one hand, feasting requires you, and, and the tithe requires you to store up food. And so these would have been largely subsistence farmers. They needed the food that they grew to live. It was a day-by-day -day thing. And so it would have been a huge sacrifice and a huge struggle to take the best 10% of that and to set it aside. And it would have required trust in God in order to do that. But on the other hand, once, once you've stored up all of this food, once you've lived on less than what you've grown, and you've got this huge storehouse, what God then asked them to do is to eat it all at once. To take all the food they've stored up, and in the face of uncertainty, to use it all up all at once. In a massive, extravagant, opulent feast. And so it requires a second kind of trust to do that, because they're looking ahead to the future. And they're saying, it would be really nice to have this stored up. It would be really nice if we had some food ready to go, just in case. Just in case the weather doesn't go well, just in case there's famine. But God calls the, the people to a kind of holy wastefulness. In light of God's grace and mercy and abundance, they're called to be abundant in response. And so these two kinds of trust are dealing with two kinds of sins. A sin that fears the present and a sin that fears the future. In the present, we're hungry and we're in need of food and we have to trust God that he's gonna provide enough for us. And in the future, we're looking ahead at uncertainty and we want uh, to be sure of ourselves, but God says, no, trust me with the future. 
And these kinds of trust are habit building. When we think of habits, we often think simply of repeated actions. But think about your, your toothbrush brushing habit. And I, my Sunday school class has heard this before. But if you think about your toothbrushing habit, which I hope that all of you have brushed your teeth this morning, you don't do that because you like toothbrushes. Nobody, nobody, maybe some people do, but nobody I know collects toothbrushes because they're, you know, neat trinkets. We brush our teeth because we have a disposition toward cleanliness. Culturally and individually, we value having clean teeth. We value having good breath. And so tooth brushing is a habit that comes out of a disposition toward cleanliness and our love of cleanliness. On the flip side of that, habits also drive us toward those dispositions. So you probably force your kids to brush their teeth. Growing up, my brother, my brother did not like to brush his teeth. And so when we were in the fifth grade or so, um, we, we were only a year apart, so we were roughly the same age. But my, my mom would ask him over and over again before we left the house, did you brush your teeth? And he would say, yes, yes, yes. And he was thinking he was being sneaky because about halfway on the way to school, she would ask again, did you brush your teeth? And he would say, oh no, I forgot. But she kept a toothbrush in the car just in case. And so on the way to school, we would pull over and he would brush his teeth. But the reason you do that is because your kids don't have built in um, ideas about cleanliness and hygiene. And so we, we instill this habit because we believe that by the repeated action, by the, the child doing that over and over again, it will instill a disposition of their will where they will want to do it. And so what God is doing here is he's, he's treating the Israelites on some level like children. He's saying, set aside a part of your food, a part of your produce, so that you may learn to fear me. And the hope is that as they do this, as they do this just in pure obedience, even against their will maybe, that eventually their hearts will be changed. The two feed each other. Our desires form our habits and our habits form our desires. And so the question for you is do your habits foster a fear of God? Or do they foster a fear of something else? Do the things you do day in and day out teach you to love God, to trust God? Or do they drive you away from him? Do you have these habits of fasting and feasting that require you to rely on him? Or do you not? Is fear of God natural in your heart and in your home? Or does godliness run against the patterns of your life? See, if you're just getting started, if you're a new Christian, this is something you're not used to, it will run against the patterns of your life. You're going to be cutting against the grain, against the way that your will works. But the goal here is that our natures would change, that we would be renewed in God, renewed in Christ to fear him as we obey him. So the question is, what needs to change in your life? What do you need to do to foster a natural fear of God? So we're called to build a kingdom where fear is natural. Second, build a kingdom where joy is central. Starting in verse 24. And if the way is too long for you, 
so that you are not able to carry the tithe. When the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So here we have a new twist in this. Most of the time, when you see a tithe or some sort of giving in the Bible, it's, it's what we call in kind. So most of the time, the idea is that I have, if I have 10 acres where I'm growing grain, what I'll do when it's time to gather up my tithe is I'll go out, pick out the best acre, the one that grew the best, and I'm gonna gather up that one acre of grain and put it in my storehouses for the tithe and eat the rest. But here, God has made provisions for blessing. See, the Bible has this, this constant strain of moving from infancy to maturity, from, from youth to adulthood. And so the commands and the stipulations were moving from, from strict law to more wisdom. And so this is a case of wisdom where God is saying, you are mature, you're adults now, and I've sent you on a mission out into the world. And so specifically, what, what this passage is saying is that if you're too far away from Jerusalem to bring your tithe, it's because God has blessed you. And so Christians, we are far away from heaven. We're sojourning in this world. And so this is the situation we're in. And God calls us, even in the midst of this blessing, to return to the feast with our tithe. It's very easy to get out into the world and become disconnected from God, to go out on his mission and to think that we can do it, on our, do it on our own. But God still calls us to come near. And the work of kingdom building that we're called to is a work of bringing people near to the king and near to his table, near to the king, to his throne, and to his feast. And the center of these, this feasting, the center of of this bringing people near is joy. Joy here is not an option. It's not a side effect. It's not a nice benefit. Joy is a command in verse 26. It says, you shall eat there before your Lord, before the Lord your God and rejoice. You and your household, not just you, your household as well, are commanded to rejoice. This is why we have passages like Psalm uh, 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Joy is the emotion that characterizes the kingdom. Joy is the thing that makes the kingdom special. And so for you, when you wake up on Sunday morning and you say, let us go into the house of the Lord, what does your household say? Do they say, I was glad when they said that unto me. Or is it, well, it's raining and the football game was late last night and maybe we should skip this morning. See, God has called us. He has sent us out into this world with his blessing, but he calls us each week to return, to bring our gifts to him and to join him at his table. And to deny that, to say, no, I'm not gonna come home. I'm not gonna come back to the Lord's place. 
To deny that is to deny the Lord's blessing. To say, God, you have blessed me, but I'm not going to respond in kind. So the question is, is joy central? What kind of kingdom are you inviting people to? If you're out in the world and you're, you're, you're trying to be the blessing that God has called you to be, and you're not inviting people into the kingdom of joy, into a place where joy is central, then you're not being faithful to God's call. And so when we come into the house of the Lord, we come with joy as central. Build a kingdom where joy is central. Third, build a kingdom where love is actual. Look at verse 27. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now, you may know something about the Levites. The Levites were a tribe of Israel specifically set apart for religious work, for temple work. They're dedicated to the temple. Some of them are priests, not all of them. Most of them are not priests. But those who are not priests are set apart to assist the priests and to um, help them in their work. So the Levites, for example, in the law, are the ones that carry around the tabernacle on their backs. But in, in the division of the land, when the people enter the land, because of who the Levites are, because of their role among the people of Israel, they don't have any inheritance in the land. All the other tribes, they divide up the land amongst all the other tribes. But the Levites don't have any land. They are given a couple of cities to rule over, but their job is to rule those cities for the sake of the other tribes. And so the Levites are not exempt from this law to come before the Lord and feast and tithe. But since they have no land and no inheritance, they don't have a tithe to bring. And so they become a paradigm for the poor and needy in Israel. In Israel, no one is exempt from this law to come before the Lord feasting and to come before the Lord with joy. But many people don't have access to uh, the resources to tithe. So this is where love of neighbor comes in. The people of Israel are supposed to love their brothers who don't have a portion or an inheritance with the land. And, and this is what I mean when I say that love should be actual. Because a lot of times we deal in the realm of potential love. We say with our mouths that we love someone. We feel good feelings about someone. But true love, real love, comes out in action. How would your family feel if you said, oh, I love you. I want to spend all my time with you. You're the best thing ever. But when Thanksgiving came around, you said, well, I'm not going to come to a Thanksgiving meal. I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go to, to Golden Corral instead of eating the turkey that you made. How would your family feel about that if you neglected them, even as you said, I love you? And so this is the kind of love that Israel is called to. Israel is called to a true love, a love that takes place in person, in real life. This requires a couple of things. Actual love, real love, requires proximity. So the, the Levites didn't go off in their own Levite corner to eat, eat their feasting meal. No, they were invited to the same table with the households of Israel to join them and eat. Love of neighbor also requires sacrifice. 
Imagine if you've gathered up this huge feast, you've been preparing for a year to eat this feast, and it's going to be opulent and beautiful and good, and you would love to eat it all yourself and share it with your family, but you're called to bring in the Levite and the foreigner and the stranger, as the passage goes on, the fatherless, the widow, all those who are within the towns who are in need, you're called to bring them in and bring them near. And that requires proximity and sacrifice. We have to be near them, just as we draw near to Jerusalem, and we have to sacrifice for them. Because it's important to remember whose tithe this is. You know, we gather up the tithe, we're, we're doing the work. Israel gathers up the tithe, tithe, and they're doing the work. But it's not our tithe, it's not Israel's tithe, it's God's tithe. And so God graciously invites us to be a part of the feast, and God graciously invites us to use this tithe to celebrate, to have joy. But ultimately, it's his tithe, and he calls us to participate in it. So what areas in your life need actualized love? Who are you neglecting? Who is your neighbor that you're not loving in person? Where is there potential for love that is not being acted out? Build a kingdom where love is actual. See, we, we've talked about this many times before. But when we come to worship, we're coming to a heavenly feast. We're coming to worship with the heavenly host. We're spiritually lifted up to heaven and we're joining with those who have gone before. And we're participating in something eternal. And so when we come each week before God, we're coming to the kingdom that he calls us to build out in the world. We're calling to a place where God is feared, where joy is central, and where love is real. And we come to the feast of God's tithe. Specifically this morning, we're going to take communion. and We're going to join in on God's tithe, on his tithe feast, which is the culmination of every Old Testament feast. And it's a participation in the ultimate feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, spiritually. But when God comes to, when God calls us to his tithe, it's not just 10%. It's not just a little bit. Jesus gave his life for us. And he tells us to eat his body and drink his blood, which we do spiritually. And to join in with him in building the kingdom. He calls us to come to the place where his name dwells. To be the people where his name dwells, to be his body, and to join in on a feast together of covenant renewal, and of joy, and of love. And so as you come this morning, be reflecting on your own heart, on your own habits and dispositions, on whether you fear God above all else. When you come to this table, come rejoicing, not, not sadly and somberly. But, but seriously rejoicing before the Lord and his grace. And as you come, be reminded of the love that Christ had for you and the love that he calls you to share with your neighbor. This is our duty and our call this morning as we come before the Lord at his table. And I pray that you'll join me in rejoicing before the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever.